Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. On a warm summer day in 1924, a dead man drove to Wyoming. He was driving a Model T. The black car filmed with dust as it sputtered and jolted along the rough country roads. Although the man behind the wheel was, in fact, very much alive, the world at large believed him to be dead, and he intended to keep it that way. The man had spent the last decade and a half laying low and making sure the world at large believed the stories of his death. And yet, the past is a powerful thing. It's a vortex that tugs at us. A black hole where, no matter how hard we try to pull away, we still find ourselves sucked in by its gravity. In this instance, the dead man had a lifetime of regrets tugging at him. Of guilt and missed opportunities. Of other lives that might have been lived. A life on the straight and narrow. A life where... He hadn't become a household name. A life where he didn't have armed men hunting him. But life on the run is a lonely one. And the dead man had reached a point where the pull of the past was just too strong. So instead he decided to finally give in to those forces and retrace his steps. He decided to go back and revisit some of the places he'd been throughout his life that had made the most impact on him places where he'd been happy just so he could say goodbye he first drove to Bags, Wyoming he and his boys had ridden through there more than once and had had themselves some grand old times he went to see an old girlfriend then from there he drove to Circleville, Utah the town he grew up in He made his way to the family farm only to learn that his family no longer lived there. Once again, he was painfully reminded of the way the world had moved on without him. He eventually found his way to his father's home. His mother had passed years earlier. He got news about it a while back, but he was never able to work up the courage to return home until now. His parents were devout Mormons and it hurt him greatly knowing just how much he disappointed his mother throughout his life. At his father's home, he was introduced to his little sister Lula, who barely remembered him. He had left home when she was still very young. When the dead man finally worked up the courage to knock on the door and face his father, it was all he could do to admit to him what a wreck he had made of his life. He didn't know how his father would react seeing him again after all these years. For a moment, the two men stood silently looking at each other. Then the ever-stern expression on his father's face softened. He reached out and embraced his son. And all was forgiven. 
Now, I have to admit, I'm taking some poetic license here. We don't know for certain this is how things occurred, or even if they occurred. We only have the word of that little sister Lula, who as an elderly woman fondly remembered the day her outlaw brother finally came home. The outlaw brother whose criminal exploits became the stuff of legend in the waning days of the Wild West. The outlaw brother who was born Robert Leroy Parker, and who allegedly died in a gunfight in the mountains of Bolivia. But rumors that Parker survived that shootout have persisted almost since the day news broke about it. You probably don't know the name Robert Leroy Parker, but you likely have heard the name he took throughout his criminal career. That name is Butch Cassidy. I'm Nate Hale, and some people call me the Space Cowboy, some people call me the Gangster of Love. Wait, scratch that. No one calls me that. And this is The Conspirators. In the wee hours of the morning on June 2nd, 1899, two men snuck their way along a desolate stretch of train tracks near Wilcox, Wyoming. The Overland Flyer was on its regular route, steaming toward a wooden trestle bridge, when the conductor spotted two men waving a lantern and signaling for them to stop the train. The train operators knew that this was often a signal that the track ahead was damaged, or perhaps the bridge was washed out. The conductor yanked on the brakes and the train screeched to a halt. But it turns out this was a mistake. The two men produced guns and they ordered the train operators to separate the passenger cars from the engine and the other car that held the safe. It was the safe car they were after. The men found themselves unable to force their way into the safe car so they instead packed the door with explosives to blow it open. But the men used too much dynamite and instead it ended up blowing the train car to bits. Cash and coins were sent flying into the air, scattering the loot across the windswept plain. Even still, the robbers were still able to gather up and make off with $50,000 in gold, cash, and banknotes. That's the equivalent of more than a million dollars in today's money. It was the biggest train robbery in the history of the West. These two robbers were part of a legendary gang of outlaws known as the Wild Bunch. The members of this gang were, unlike a lot of other notorious criminals from the era such as Jesse James or Billy the Kid, in that they tried to avoid bloodshed wherever possible. Instead, they became folk heroes to members of the very same communities they robbed. They were the Robin Hoods of the West stealing from the rich and sharing the wealth with some of the poorest members of the towns they rode through. The Wild Bunch owed all their success to the group's leader, a charismatic thief named Butch Cassidy, who gained a reputation as a different sort of outlaw. A man who had no compunction about robbing banks, railroads, and mining companies, but who insisted that he and his men leave no bodies behind. By the end of the 19th century, the Wild West, as we have come to know it, was fading away. The frontier mentality was slipping into the past as new rail lines and cities were being built all across the country. But this left the cowboys and the outlaws of days gone by in a tough spot, trying to find their way in this world that no longer had a use for them. 
Butch Cassidy was born Robert Leroy Parker to a family of devout Mormons in southern Utah. His father, Maximilian, had been one of the earliest settlers to the area. Throughout his life, he'd found it difficult to farm the arid soil on the family farm. He'd often been forced to seek work far away from home, leaving, raising the children up to their mother, Anne. She was a devoutly religious woman who would look to her eldest son, Robert, to help raise the 13 kids. Robert Parker was an easygoing, likable fellow who made friends easily wherever he went. All the children were homeschooled by Anne. This meant most of their lessons centered around the Bible. It was through these tales that Anne taught the children that there was a very clear line between right and wrong. At age 13, Robert took a job on a nearby ranch to earn money for the family. It was there he met a man who would help shape him into who he became later in life, a cattle rustler named Mike Cassidy, who taught him how to ride, shoot, and most importantly, how to steal and not get caught. Cassidy showed Robert how easy it was to steal a few cattle here and there from the big cattle operations. You could snatch a few cows from a large herd and they'd never be missed. It was easy money. Parker idolized Cassidy, who represented a wild and carefree lifestyle. In the summer of 1884, the then 18-year-old Robert Parker rode to the mining town of Telluride, Colorado, seeking adventures of his own. Back then, Telluride was a wild mining town full of gambling, drinking, and prostitution, as well as plenty of would-be cowboys all packing guns. Young Robert Parker thought he was going to strike it rich in the mining town. But he soon realized just how difficult it was to find an inroad into a system that was already well established before he got there. Most of the major claims had already been staked, leaving Robert forced to take on backbreaking jobs hauling gold and silver down the mountains for the rich mine owners. Each and every day Robert would emerge from the mines bone tired and dreaming about a better way to strike it rich. He struck up a friendship with a lapsed Mormon named Matt Warner and his brother-in-law, Tom McCarty. And together, the three men began hatching a plan to rob the local bank. The problem with most bank robberies, as Robert saw it, was that they were so poorly planned. Most of the time, it was just some drunk cowboys going in guns blazing and getting caught and gunned down on their way out the door holding the loot. But Robert was far too smart to fall into that same trap. He knew that with proper planning, a successful robber could ensure they were making the most profits for the least amount of risk. Before engaging in a bank robbery, Robert began studying when the shipments of cash were arriving and what time of day the vaults would be fullest. He also paid careful attention to how he would make his getaway after. On June 24, 1889, Parker and his partners rode to the San Miguel Valley Bank. They waited until the cashier left, leaving only a single teller inside. Warner and Parker strolled casually inside and demanded the teller hand over all the money. The pair managed to ride out of town before anyone even realized the bank had been robbed. But that was just part of Robert's forward thinking. To Parker, the getaway was the most important part of the job. Once a posse gathered to chase after them, Robert had planned ahead by setting up a store of fresh horses at key points along his getaway route. This allowed he and his partner to change out their tired horses and keep riding, leaving the members of the posse in the dust. From there, Parker began building his gang and planning even more robberies. 
On a good day, you could walk out of a bank with $20,000 or more. That was more than your average cowboy could make in 10 years of hard labor. But Parker knew the news of his crime spree would break his very religious mother's heart. So Robert Leroy Parker decided to change his name, taking the last name of his former mentor, Butch Cassidy. While all this was going on far away in the mill town of Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, a young man named Harry Longabow was dreaming of his own adventure. Longabow was another young man who worked long hours in the Philadelphia canals. But who dreamed of a bigger and better life? He grew up reading the dime novels that told tall tales of the Wild West, stories of gunfights and daring adventures, tales of famous cowboys like Jesse James and Buffalo Bill. At age 14, Harry Longabow got his chance to head out west when he landed a job on his cousin's ranch in Cortez, Colorado. It was there Harry learned to be a cowboy. And like the cowboys he read about in his dime novels, Harry longed for the open range. But after a devastating blizzard blanketed the western plains of Colorado in 1887, wiping out a substantial number of cattle, Harry found himself out of work and struggling to make any money. Harry Longabout turned to petty crime and would eventually land in jail for stealing a horse outside Sundance, Wyoming. When the then 21-year-old Harry Longabout got out of prison, he also emerged with a new nickname, the Sundance Kid. Sundance decided early on that robbing banks was too dangerous and that robbing trains could be a lot easier and more lucrative. He and a couple of other out-of-work cowboys decided to try their hand at robbing a train outside Malta, Montana, a cattle shipping depot along the Great Northern Rail Line. In the early morning hours of November 29, 1892, the Great Northern Number 23 pulled into the station in Malta. Sundance and his partners snuck onto the train under cover of darkness. But Sundance and his cohorts were plagued by many of the same problems that Butch Cassidy saw with most robbers. Namely, they were all drunk and had made no real plans ahead of time. When the trio got inside the money car, they realized one of the two safes was locked tight and none of them could get inside. The other safe was wide open, but it was empty. The men hadn't realized the banks were closed on Sunday, so there was no cash on board. Sundance and his partners grabbed what little money they could find and rushed to get away. Their big score netted them $25 to be split three ways. Sundance's partners were quickly caught after that, and they both ratted Sundance out. Within days, wanted posters offering a $500 reward for Sundance's capture were being plastered around the local towns. Sundance fled to the mountains, where there was already a well-established network of hideouts that had become known as the Outlaw Trail. Along this 1,500-mile stretch of wilderness between northern Montana and New Mexico, you could find locales with colorful names such as Brown's Park, Robber's Roost, and Hole in the Wall. Sundance would eventually make his way to Brown's Park, and it was here that he joined up with Butch Cassidy's gang, a gang that had come to be known as the Wild Bunch. Butch and Sundance became fast friends, even though they seemed on the surface to be direct opposites. Whereas Butch Cassidy was gregarious and outgoing, Sundance was much quieter and more serious. But Butch came to see Sundance as a kindred spirit, as well as someone he could trust and plan robberies with. Pretty soon, the Wild Bunch had grown to more than 20 members. 
There were even some wild claims that appeared in newspapers over the ensuing years that Butch Cassidy's Wild Bunch grew to include more than 500 men. They mostly targeted banks and mining companies throughout the West. They also made a particular point of making friends with a lot of the locals throughout the very same communities they robbed. Many local residents began to see Butch and his Wild Bunch as Robin Hood figures. Butch and the gang might stop for a night at a local widow's home and leave her some money to help pay her mortgage for the month. In return, many locals helped them out by providing them with warm meals and places to rest up, and sometimes even provided them with the fresh horses they needed to make their daring getaways. Another way that Butch Cassidy was different than a lot of other outlaws from the era was that he decided early on they didn't have to kill people. Murder would bring a different kind of heat down on them. He also knew he didn't want that sort of weight on his conscience. By 1889, the Wild Bunch was beginning to make headlines across the country. Newspapers were speaking of Butch Cassidy as the greatest criminal mastermind in the history of the West. Pretty soon, it seemed like every major crime that occurred anywhere west of the Mississippi was being blamed on Butch Cassidy and the Wild Bunch. But all this notoriety was a double-edged sword. Many of the powerful railroad executives, bankers, and mining barons became determined to bring law and order to the West. Some of these wealthy magnates turned to the Pinkerton National Detective Agency for help. The Pinkerton Detective Agency was founded 50 years earlier by a Scottish immigrant named Alan Pinkerton. They were the nation's first organized private detective agency. In fact, the logo that featured the slogan, We Never Sleep, along with a single unblinking eye, is where we get the term private eye from. Pinkerton perfected the use of undercover agents and informants for gathering information. Abraham Lincoln even employed the Pinkerton service to run spy operations during the Civil War. By the time Butch and Sundance were in their criminal prime, the Pinkertons were being run by Alan Pinkerton's son, William. At that time, the agency employed over 2,000 full-time agents, with over 30,000 paid informants and part-time agents. They employed a standing army that was larger than that of the United States government. The Pinkertons began focusing all their attention on tracking down Butch Cassidy and his Wild Bunch. They used cutting-edge technology for the day, like the telegraph, to send and receive vital information about the gang. Studious records were kept about the gang's movements and even included detailed records of physical descriptions and the backgrounds of various gang members. After Butch's men successfully robbed and blew up a Union Pacific train on June 2, 1899, the president of the rail line reached out to the Pinkertons to ensure such a robbery could never happen again. Within 24 hours, more than 100 armed Pinkerton detectives, sheriffs, and deputies were scouring the area near the train robbery looking for clues that would lead them to the Wild Bunch. One thing the Pinkertons did that was unique to trace the Wild Bunch was to track the serial numbers and the banknotes they stole. When those notes began being circulated in nearby towns, the Pinkerton detectives knew members of the Wild Bunch had been through there. The first member of the Wild Bunch the Pinkertons tracked down using this method was Lonnie Logan. He got caught exchanging some of the stolen loot at a bank in Montana. Logan soon found his hideout being surrounded by Pinkerton agents who gunned him down as he tried to make his escape. As the Pinkertons began closing in on the gang, Butch and Sundance began to realize their days were numbered. Butch had himself a close call as he narrowly escaped being arrested while working as a cowboy in a New Mexico cattle ranch. When he was tipped off, the Pinkertons were hot in his trail. 
Butch Cassidy knew that it was only a matter of time before they were caught. And yet Butch and his gang still decided to have a little fun together in Fort Worth, Texas in the red light district known as Hell's Half Acre. It was here that Butch, Sundance, Harvey, Logan, and Ben, the tall Texan, decided to pose for one last photo together. They decked themselves out in fine clothes and posed like a group of real gentlemen for a portrait at a local studio. But the photographer made the mistake of hanging the photo in the shop window, and it wasn't long before someone recognized Butch and Sundance and informed the Pinkertons they had been there. Butch and Sundance came to realize there was nowhere left in the United States where they could be safe. So they instead decided to flee the country. They had heard that there were still parts of South America that were just as wild and free as the American West had once been. By February 1901, Butch and Sundance began making plans to board a steamer out of New York City that was bound for Argentina. Butch and Sundance traveled to New York in the company of a third member of their party, Sundance's girlfriend, Etta Place. Very little is known about Etta Place. It's not even 100% certain that was her real name. Some stories claim she was a schoolteacher. Other accounts say she was a prostitute. All we do know for certain is that Sundance was smitten with her, and for a time she became his constant companion. For a few days, the trio lived the high life in New York City, seeing the sights and pretending to be wealthy cattle barons from out west. On February 20th, 1901, the trio sailed out of New York Harbor. They left the rest of the wild bunch behind, although the gang continued to operate for a few more years. But things were never the same for them without their leader. Harry Logan committed suicide after being chased down following a robbery in Colorado. The tall Texan tried to rob a train but ended up being beaten to death by someone who got the drop on him. One by one, the members of the Wild Bunch were either arrested or killed. There are really many reasons to listen to our podcast, Big Picture Science. It's kind of a challenge to summarize them all, Molly. Okay, here's a reason to listen to our show, Big Picture Science, because you love to be surprised by science news. We love to be surprised by science news. So, for instance, I learned on our own show that I had been driving around with precious metals in my truck before it was stolen. That was brought up in our show about precious metals and also rare metals, like most of the things in your catalytic converter. I was surprised to learn that we may begin naming heat waves like we do hurricanes. You know, prepare yourself for heat wave Lucifer. I don't think I can prepare myself for that. Look, we like surprising our listeners. We like surprising ourselves by reporting new developments in science and while asking the big picture questions about why they matter and how they will affect our lives today and in the future. Well, we can't affect lives in the past, right? No, I I guess that's a point. (laughs) So the podcast is called Big Picture Science, and you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. We are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us. We hope you'll take a listen. Two years after Butch and Sundance fled the United States, audiences were thrilled by Edwin Porter's film, The Great Train Robbery, which was partially inspired by Butch and Sundance's exploits and is often cited as one of the first motion pictures to show a complete story. Over the years, the legend of Butch and Sundance just grew and grew. Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West show even began performing a recreation of one of the gang's train robberies. In 1969, a film about the outlaws starring Paul Newman and Robert Redford became a box office smash and is considered a Western classic today. But even though Butch and Sundance were no longer in the U.S., that didn't stop the Pinkertons from still looking for them. 
In the winter of 1903, a Pinkerton foreman managed to get their hands on a letter Sundance wrote to his family, revealing that he and Butch Cassidy were now living in Argentina. For a while, Butch and Sundance settled into a quiet domestic life in Patagonia. They built a four-room ranch house and bought themselves 300 head of cattle, 1,300 sheep, and 28 horses. It seemed like they were making a real attempt at going straight, but the Pinkertons, true to their slogan, never slept. They distributed flyers throughout Argentina with the men's photograph, explaining that they were dangerous outlaws from America. At some point, Etta Place vanished. No one knows exactly where or when Etta decided to go, but somewhere along the line, Etta disappears from the historical record. With the law back on their trail, Butch and Sundance decided to get out of town as well. They made their way across the border to Bolivia, where they attempted to return to their old life of crime. But this proved to be more difficult than it had been before. Butch and Sundance didn't have the support of the locals the way they did back home. Nor did they know the terrain or even much of the language. On November 4th, 1908, they robbed the payroll from the Aeromile Silver Mine. But within hours of the heist, the telegraph lines began broadcasting news of the robbery. Soon, every town in the area had Butch and Sundance's description. The Bolivian military began combing the area looking for them. Butch and Sundance made their way north to the desolate mining town of San Vicente, where they took shelter in a house in the hills and began planning their next move. But word that Butch and Sundance were around reached the town's mayor, and he informed the Bolivian military. Soldiers surrounded the house and opened fire. The official story goes that once the shooting was over, the soldiers found two gringos inside, both with bullet holes in their heads. It appeared to be a murder-suicide with the man identified as Butch Cassidy first shooting Sundance, then turning the gun on himself. But is that what really happened? Almost as soon as the gun smoke cleared, rumors began to spread that the two gringos killed in the house in Bolivia were not Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Although descriptions of the two bodies bear some resemblance to Butch and Sundance, keep in mind, no photographs of the corpses were ever taken to provide proof. It's been reported that the two bodies were identified as Butch and Sundance by a mining engineer named Percy Siebert, who had actually employed the pair as mine security near La Paz. Percy Siebert actually became close friends with Butch and Sundance, and speculation has arisen ever since that Perhaps he helped engineer the two outlaws' ultimate escape. Keep in mind, there is some circumstantial evidence that the two men killed in the house in San Vicente were actually Butch and Sundance. During the mine robbery that got the Bolivian military hot in their trail, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kids stole 15,000 Bolivianos and a mule that bore the mine's brand. That same mule was located just outside the house. But even still, stories persist that the Bolivian army may have caught the wrong two gringos. Even the Pinkerton Detective Agency wasn't convinced of their deaths. The Pinkertons kept diligent records of every move Butch and Sundance made throughout their criminal careers. And some Pinkerton documents dated in 1910, two years after the shootout in Bolivia, still indicate that Butch and Sundance were alive and kicking. Little is known about what, if anything, might have happened to Harry Longabaugh, the Sundance kid, following the shootout. But stories abound about Butch Cassidy's exploits following his alleged death. John McPhee's book, Annals of the Former World, repeats a story Dr. Francis Smith told to geologist David Love in the 1930s. Smith claimed that he had encountered Butch Cassidy years after his supposed death. Smith said that Cassidy had his face altered by a surgeon in Paris, 
Ned, as evidence of his identity, showed the man the scars from an old bullet wound he had treated years earlier. In 1977, researcher Larry Pointer caused a sensation when he published a book titled In Search of Butch Cassidy, in which he made the bold claim that Butch survived the shootout and moved to Spokane, Washington, where he became a machinist and changed his name to William T. Phillips. That man died quietly in 1937, but he left behind a manuscript he'd written titled Banded Invincible about the life and crimes of Butch Cassidy. But researchers like Pointer, who read the manuscript, began to speculate that the details within were a little too knowledgeable and contained information that only Butch Cassidy himself would have known. Although in later years, Pointer recanted his earlier claims and instead began to say that William T. Phillips was actually William T. Wilcox, an old friend and former gang member of Butch. But even still, there remain some researchers today who believe Phillips really was Butch Cassidy. A former girlfriend of Butch's named Josie Bennett claimed Butch came to visit her in the 1920s after hiding out for several years in South America. She also claimed that Butch died in Johnny, Nevada sometime in the 1930s or 40s. In 1975, Butch's now elderly sister, Lula Parker Bettinson, published a book with writer Dora Flack titled Butch Cassidy, My Brother. That claims Butch returned to his hometown in Circleville, Utah in 1925. And then, again, several times more after that. In 1978, the television show In Search of interviewed residents of Bags, Wyoming, a popular destination for Butch and his wild bunch, who claimed that Butch Cassidy stopped by for a visit to his old stomping grounds back in 1924. It was also claimed that Butch drove through in a Model T Ford that he then drove to Circleville, where he reconnected with his family. According to Lula Bettinson, her older brother lived in the Northwest for several more years until his death in 1937. She claimed that his family decided to conceal the location where Butch was buried. As Lula put it, they had chased him all his life, and now he's going to rest in peace. In 2019, the television program Mission Declassified included an interview between investigative journalist Christoph Putzel and local researcher Marilyn Grace, who claimed she knew the real location of Butch Cassidy's remains. Grace claimed that Cassidy was secretly buried beneath Tom's cabin, a former sheepherder's log cabin located on a remote part of the Cassidy family ranch. A couple of locals were interviewed who described one day when the family gathered near the cabin in funeral-like clothing. Grace said the cadaver dogs led a search crew to the cabin where two bones were later uncovered. These were later identified as a human spinal bone and a toe bone. Although DNA tests were later able to determine that the bones came from a human being, one other story claims that these two bones were accidentally left behind after the Parker family secretly moved Butch's remains to another burial location. Yet another account that further deepens the mystery comes to us from husband and wife researchers Daniel Buck and Ann Meadows, who scoured records throughout South America hoping to track down the whereabouts of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid's remains. After the two gringos shot and killed themselves, their remains were buried in an unmarked grave. Buck and Meadows enlisted the aid of renowned forensic anthropologist Clyde Snow, who had conclusively identified the remains of Nazi war criminal Joseph Mengele. He received permission from the Bolivian government to unearth the purported grave where the two gringos were buried. He was led to the location by an elderly villager from San Vicente, whose father had reportedly witnessed the shootout. In 1991, a skeleton of one man was dug up along with a piece of a skull from another. 
Snow conducted a detailed forensic analysis and comparison of the DNA to relatives of Butch and Sundance, but there was no match. This skeleton was instead likely to be that of a German miner named Gustav Zimmer who had worked in the area. It's possible that the remains of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid remain buried elsewhere in the San Vicente Cemetery, or it's possible they were never buried there at all and both lived to a ripe old age. Following news of Butch and Sundance's alleged deaths, the Washington Post published an article in which they declared that the Wild Bunch had disappeared with the march of civilization. For many people, it remains inconceivable that these two legendary outlaws could have reached the end of the outlaw trail, because the death of Butch and Sundance marks the end of an era. Their deaths came at the tail end of the romantic visions of the Wild West. Gone were the days of the cowboys in the open range, of outlaws and bank robbers, and so much of what we think of as the West that was. And once Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid were gone, so too did the West die with them. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Sarah Edwin, Chris, and Tom for signing up and helping support the show. You're all amazing. Just a reminder that patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes. In fact, I'll have a new bonus episode ready to go very soon. If you're interested in becoming a patron to the show, I'll put a link in the show notes. Another great way you can help support the show is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's magical algorithms and helps spread the good word to more people. It's like a pyramid scheme, only a lot less sketchy. If you're not on Apple, not to worry, you can also find us in most of the places you get your podcasts, including Stitcher and Spotify. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. Elsewhere, I invite you to follow us along on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and our Facebook page. You can even drop us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com and let us know how we're doing. I love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next time.